Good afternoon. Welcome to the All Souls Forum. Today's presentation, How Area Power Utilities Are Stalling on Climate Change Progress, was recorded at All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church in Kansas City, Missouri, November 12, 2023. My name is Craig Volland. I'm a member of the All Souls Unitarian Universalist Forum Committee. Welcome to the All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church Forum. The forum's mission is to afford a platform for the discussion of significant issues, especially those that involve ethical values in the contemporary world, and also to promote critical thinking. The forum has been in operation since 1943. So it's been around for a long time and it's still going strong. Please silence your cell phones because this presentation is being recorded for KKFI Community Radio and also as a YouTube recording and be accessible on the church website. This morning, we have two speakers. One of them is remote by Zoom. That's Gretchen Waddell Barwick. Gretchen is the Sierra Club's Missouri Chapter Director. She is a lifelong Missourian growing up in Kansas City and St. Louis. Gretchen graduated with a master's in social work from Washington University and wanted to advocate for a better future for Missourians. She quickly found her passion in advocacy and community organizing and believes climate change is the crisis of our generation. Gretchen has been with the Sierra Club for nine years, starting as a grassroots organizer. Our other speaker is Ty Gorman. Ty is senior representative for the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign in Kansas and Oklahoma. And he started out as an employee of the U.S. EPA and the U.S. Department of Energy. He has worked for our utility companies that he's uh, like he's going to talk about today. And he has specialized in climate change adaptation around the world, including stints in India and Brazil. Uh, he has a master's degree in environmental policy and economics. We're going to start with Gretchen, I believe. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for having us today. Uh, thank you, Craig, for that introduction as well. Ty and I are here today to talk to you a little bit about the recent report Sierra Club came out with called the Dirty Truth Report. Um, before I get started, I'll share a little bit about Sierra Club. So for those not familiar, Sierra Club is the most enduring and influential grassroots environmental organization in the United States. Here in Kansas and Missouri, we have tens of thousands of members and supporters, and we work together to amplify our voices and defend our right for a healthy world. Our vision statement is that we envision healthy and thriving communities across the U.S. with uh, that are a powered by affordable community-based clean energy, um, and our energy system contributes to racial, economic, and environmental justice, where communities maintain access to secure, safe, and sustainable jobs, and that there is accountability to ensure that the energy industry is fair and just and aligned with the public interest. Our priorities are to advance climate solutions, get people outdoors, act for justice, and protect land, air, water, and wildlife. 
And we recognize that we can't do that together. So we work in collaboration with a lot of other groups um, and communities and encourage people on the ground to share up and lift their voices because Ty and I can't do it by ourselves. Uh, Your voice is absolutely vital to our success, which you will see shortly. The Dirty Truth Report started coming out three years ago. Um, So this is the third iteration of the Dirty Truth Report. And it's a comprehensive assessment of whether utilities are committing to the actions needed to avert cataclysmic climate crisis. It's based on analysis of long-term energy plans known as integrated resource plans and major announcements from 50 utilities that generate electricity from coal and gas. So this is major investor-owned utilities, public utilities, um, co-ops, and large municipal utilities. In total, we examined 77 operating companies that own 50 parent companies and cover most of the United States. And what we found is that while utilities are talking a great talk about protecting the climate and becoming carbon neutral, the vast majority of utilities are not actually taking the necessary steps to avoid the worst impacts of the climate crisis. Today, Ty and I are going to be talking to you about three major utilities in Kansas and Missouri. We're going to be talking to you about Evergy, AECI, and Ameren. This is incredibly important because the majority of utilities are lagging behind and failing to seize a critical moment to advance reliable, affordable energy. And the fossil fuel industry and utility lobbyists have spent years fighting against proposals to address climate change. Now, I don't know about y'all, but last week here in St. Louis, it was 80 degrees. 80 degrees in November. We broke climate records. Now is not the time to be fighting against climate change policy. Now is not the time to be digging our heels in and investing in dirty and outdated technology. We need our utilities to be good community partners because real climate action is going to create millions of jobs, save thousands of lives, and create industries to revitalize the United States and save our future. We cannot wait. We need commitments and not empty promises. We need plans and timetables, not greenwashing and promising press releases. We need our utilities to commit to 100% clean and renewable energy, and we need them to do it now. Now, Evergy this year received an F grade in the Dirty Truth Report. This went down from last year's grade of a D. Because the executives at Evergy planned to invest renewables before 2030, um, but instead they extended the life of the Lawrence and Hawthorne coal plants and announced plans to invest in two new gas-burning plants before the end of the decade. These are the actions of a utility that is not invested in what the community wants, but instead are executives squeezing captive customers for money. In Kansas, we released a report in 2021 detailing how Evergy could provide reliable service at a lower cost, replacing its Lacine and Jeffrey coal plants with clean energy before the end of a decade. This would save customers between $333 million and $869 million based on how quickly Evergy replaces them. 
In Kansas City, community advocates have called for Evergy to pursue closing the Hawthorne coal-fired power plant. It is actually included in Kansas City's Clean Action Plan um, that was passed by City Council and has huge support, including community neighborhoods that came forward and called for it. But Evergy is not paying attention, and instead, they pushed back the date of the closure by years. So that's why we are calling for Evergy to close the Hawthorne plant, which causes five premature deaths every year and is in a, is in a community that is predominantly Black, Latino, and Latinx, Hispanic, and low income. This is absolutely ridiculous, and we know that Evergy can be doing better. Just look at our neighbors in Oklahoma. They received a 100 out of 100, an A score on our report because they are closing coal plants and replacing them with clean energy. Their residential rates are 9.5 cents, while average residential rates are 12.5. So we know it is affordable. It is possible to provide reliable and affordable clean energy, and it's just a matter of choosing to do so. Elsewhere in the state, we have the Associated Electric Co-op, AECI. They received an F as well, with zero points for the second year in a row. Last year, they decided to add up to 900 megawatts of additional fracked gas-burning power plants to their generation mix. Their two coal plants, New Madrid and Thomas Hill, cost members more than $100 million every year just to import coal from Wyoming. Additionally, these two plants are the top two nitrogen oxide air polluters in the entire country. They also are in the top five for sulfur dioxide air pollution in our region, not just our state, not just in Missouri, in our entire region. The air pollution from these facilities contributes to more than 1,400 asthma attacks and 133 premature deaths annually. We know that the 2022 Inflation Reduction Act that was passed by Congress makes $970 million available to AECI to relieve debt and retire coal plants. So why is AECI not prioritizing investing in the Inflation Reduction Act and investing in our communities? Why double down on coal and gas? And on my side of the state, in Amron, Amron has received a D for the third year in a row. Amron has fantastic PR. They have great press releases. They have wonderful public relations. But their greenwashing in the media is not the reality of what's happening in our communities. Amron put forward a plan to for new gas-burning power plants in 2028 and 2033. They even have a climate risk strategy that omits, that absolutely refuses to track emissions leaking into the atmosphere from fracking and transportation of gas. They're not following their own guidelines, their own rules, and their own recommendations for combating the climate crisis. They plan to burn coal until 2042, once climate science says that we need to end burning coal by 2030. And recently, Amron decided 
to operate the Rush Island coal plant in violation of the Clean Air Act for years. This is a shining example of how utility executives are not serious about improving regional air quality, and they are not investing in our communities and the people that live there. Their failure and abject refusal to install technology to reduce air pollution, save lives, as required by federal law, is a slap in the face of the people that live in our communities. It's really unclear how AMRIN is incorporating its own environmental justice guidance in its energy planning, but we do know that they have flat out told us that they refuse to consider public health impacts in energy planning. Labity coal plant near where I live in St. Louis causes 195 premature deaths every year and emits 15.5 million tons of carbon dioxide every year. This is absolutely shameful. And these utilities make up the majority of Missouri and a significant portion of Kansas and absolutely need to hear from you and advocates in our community that this is unacceptable and that we expect them to do better. Our future absolutely depends on it. Ty, I'll pass it over to you. All right, thank you. Um, you can go ahead to the next slide. If I don't think I have control over here, thank you. Um, so, you know, why should you care about this? Uh, it really, the utility cares a lot about what the customers think. For a monopoly organization, they are uh, put tons of advertising out there, partially because they care about what you think, and that's because they have to meet the requirements of their regulators and uh, the politicians in the in the in both the states here so uh, they are very sensitive to uh, you know, making sure the customers believe that they have your best interest at heart um, the just to repeat a couple things about evergy um, the 333 to 819 million dollars can be saved by closing the coal plants and going to clean energy the uh, the but the Evergy has a lot of ex reasons why they say they won't do that. And uh, the I'd like to just jump back to Evergy real quick here before uh, getting into the pollution. Um, I mean, um, you know, the reason they went up to a D last year was that they had a you know, plan to close Lawrence Evergy Center and have uh, clean energy be brought into the grid in about eight years and that's what they had in that integrated resource plan and then they went back on it uh, this year and took that uh, that projection away that had tested out fine the year before in their integrated resource plan and so uh, part of what uh, sierra club's doing and we need your voice uh, in 2024 is to tell evergy that when they're redoing this plan this is a 20-year plan uh, for their all their generation and predicting the customer behavior demand side. So that's what an integrated resource plan is. And that's a public process that's going to have a lot of pressure on it in 2024 because this is their first triennial uh, integrated resource plan, um, which means they have to justify and update the process. Um, so a lot of these um, you know, these decisions they're making around doubling down on fossil fuels, increasing their profits that way, the models that they're basing that on need to be corrected. And we're, we're going to be 
really pushing that in Kansas, we have uh, some good regulators in Kansas that can uh, like find uh, the you know the the good information and force or at least hold Evergy accountable for correct information and updating their plans to get rid of these gas plants and to close these coal plants the way they should for financial and reliability reasons. So um, just wanted to uh, put put that out there as a call for action here locally in Kansas City on both the Missouri and the Kansas uh, metro side. So the the environmental racism is an important part of this, both from the cost side, so the bills being too high, and from the uh, pollution side. Um, so the Hawthorne plant, as was mentioned, is right in the middle of uh, the city, right surrounded by Black and Latino families. And that's a very common story across the country as far as uh, you know, utility environmental racism, where they like to cite these polluting plants that kill people and give people asthma. The uh, the cost side is also a common story across the country. Uh, the utilities everywhere right now are trying to get gas plants approved and trying to build them before batteries become obviously a better solution. So they have a couple year window here where the batteries are ramping back up in production. The utility scale batteries are coming online and the the capacity or reliability of that generation, the, uh, the storage is uh, not quite ready to be in the models. It hasn't quite been given value by our regional transmission organization. So our the Southwest Power Pool, they give the energy market structure and they give the value there. So just uh, uh, th that's kind of why this is happening. They can they get profit from building expensive equipment <laughs> from building capital. They have they have money because they own things. That's how the utility structure works right now. We're trying to change that structure and we're trying to change that plan uh, so that we can incorporate the much cheaper, cleaner, healthier storage in a couple of years. And that'll solve our uh, capacity problems because you'll hear that a lot if you uh, start listening to what the utility says. They'll say, we can't help but keep these coal plants running and build this gas because that's what's reliable. But that's... Uh, that's not quite true, and uh, and it's much cheaper to, and as you can see in this slide, uh, the the coal plants are operating well above market, much more expensive than uh, any renewable or clean energy options. Uh, so really, the only reason to have them is this uh, reliability, uh, I guess, fallacy that's being pushed, and um, you know the 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 issue with uh, environmental. Uh, justice here is uh, kind of central to how Sierra Club um, wants to change the power sector. And um, and there's all kinds of crossover uh, between the utility issues and all the other historical racism that has developed in our, in our housing and our health uh, systems. So here's just to show kind of you know, how all these areas overlap. All the na same neighborhoods are experiencing all these problems. Uh, so here's the historic redlining, uh, the the home disenfranchisement. Uh, you can go ahead to the next one and keep cycling through. This is, uh, you, know, you can see that the uh, the, the, the race is uh, predictive of where that uh, energy burden is. That's what this slide says. An energy burden is the percentage of your income that you spend on utilities, uh, on gas and uh, electric. So 
people, yeah, anything above five or six percent of your income going to your electric or gas is an energy burdened uh, situation. You're being charged too much, basically, <laughs> of your, what it takes to survive, and that with by paying your electric and gas bills. And uh, you know, in these communities, especially, it's getting up past ten percent, um, and that's really impossible to <laughs> to keep up with, along with all the rent and everything else that's going up. Uh, so that's just to show that this these decisions really affect uh, you know low income, and but even more than that, uh, Black and Latino families more than anyone else. Um, in St. Louis, it's a very similar situation. They have uh, air pollution concentrated in communities of color um, from transportation and from uh, generation, coal and gas burning. Uh, you can say anything else you'd like to about that, Gretchen, since that's your, your town there. Yeah, this is where I live. What I'll just say is Sierra says St. Louis has a lot of historic redlining, um, much like many states, but we are still very much the community divided. Um, and what these graphs show is that in majority Black zip codes, you have significantly higher rates of asthma-related ER visits and asthma-related hospitalizations. We also have significantly more air pollution. Um, these uh, blue dots each represent an air pollution source. And you can see that the majority are in areas where there's a higher percentage of Black and brown folks that are living in those communities. Um, and on average, um, percentage of household income spent on utility bills is significantly higher than the median St. Louis household for folks who are renting for folks who are people of color and folks that are low income. Um, this is due to very old housing stock um, and then historic um, policies that disenfranchised folks and did not allow people to have protections. And then also um, just really dangerous placement of air pollution sources. Um, so, you know, here in Kansas City, this a perfect example of this is the Hawthorne Coal Plant, which is right smack dab in the middle of downtown uh, Kansas City and Jackson County. Um, we have found, and this has been shown through reports and a lot of research, that people who are of color or low-income families were 70% more likely to live within three miles of a coal-fired power plant than white or moderate or high level incomes um, and families. So we know that there is a burden and we know that there's a disproportionate impact on folks who need assistance the most and who have been historically and are continued to be disenfranchised and not included in these conversations. Thanks, Gretchen. Uh, go ahead to the next one there. Um, so I'm, I'm going to talk a little about the opportunities here, and uh, I'll, I'll start with just saying when I started my position here in 2020, the pandemic had just started, and people's utilities were getting shut off everywhere because they, they couldn't pay. So they put a moratorium on that for a little while, and then those started to expire too soon. People still had this all this backlog of uh, you know payments that they were supposed to make. They were getting... Their utilities shut off and then thrown out of their houses, even though there was an eviction moratorium during a pandemic. So we 
need to, and Sierra Club has been and will continue to center our activism, our people power around uh, kind of empowering the those who are struggling the most and who are being most negatively affected by these utilities to have the power to make the decisions and to control the changes that may, are made in the utilities. So, you know, the at that point, we were just getting together and fighting to save keep the moratorium, uh, bring this money that was eventually passed and brought down to get to the families uh, through the, uh, the the rental assistance and the utility assistance programs that the federal government had then. But those processes were so difficult, like the red tape around it and the applications and getting the money where it needed to go was really difficult. And so, uh, we, you know, we have to stick together and fight those fights always. But now we have the Inflation Reduction Act. That's the big uh, opportunity here to make real change in those dynamics around the people. You know, the people in the red line districts have the oldest housing stock. That's another thing. Their, their houses there need weatherization. They need health-centered uh, energy efficiency projects to make sure that the home is made healthier and tighter and can hold in the heat and the air conditioning and be safe and healthy. So, you know, they, the, the uh, weatherization programs of the past could only really affect five to ten percent of low-income homes um, through, you know, the uh, the uh, you know, weatherization assistance program or the low-income energy program that have been uh, put administered by the federal government. Now we have tens of millions of dollars sitting in in Kansas at the state level, waiting to be implemented and brought to uh, program to low-income communities that should be uh, planned by and there should be right now a lot of outreach and engagement with churches with nonprofits with uh, community assistance programs to help plan how those dollars come into the community and help to uh, reduce lower energy bills for folks who are having the most trouble paying um, so that's one opportunity inflation reduction act the um you know the the transition money like the fact that evergy went from a d to an s after the inflation reduction act is passed is especially uh ridiculous because there's so much money available to make that transition right now there's uh 30 to 40 percent off the top of any clean energy investment that they're making right now and there's grants on top of that to uh to bring uh, distributed generation to communities. The Solar for All program, for example, has tens of millions of dollars in Kansas and Missouri to bring solar energy to the communities, have that clean energy be, uh, be cited there. But that is currently illegal uh, in these states because the utilities have said they need to own everything and people and you aren't allowed to have community solar. Um, so that right now, that $14 million in Kansas is in danger of not being used correctly, not being used for that because of that kind of utility-specific law. So we're trying to change that law uh, this year. We're trying to get the um, the the data from the utility to be transparent. Uh, you know, mo all these uh, you know integrated resource plan details and all the uh, kind of shutoffs and community uh, information around who's struggling the most is confidential right now. But it can be a really important tool to bring assistance where it needs to be. Uh, and the utility can be a partner in that. 
And uh, just recently, Evergy in Kansas passed its efficiency programs for the first time ever. Uh, so you all on Missouri side have had efficiency programs for 10 years or so. Kansas passed that law that they could have them 10 years ago at the same time, but we have never been able to get that through the commission until last year. And finally, uh, the commissioners there voted for uh, the efficiency programs to be implemented uh, starting next year. So uh, that also is a huge opportunity added on to the Inflation Reduction Act money to expand this clean energy on the demand side. Um, so, you know, it, it, there's, uh, there's one option to get rid of these coal plants and gas plants and lower prices, and that's, you know, solar, wind, storage, generation side, large projects. And the other option is demand side management resources, they call them. So uh, that is, uh, you know, energy efficiency in the homes, which really target those peak times when it's hottest and coldest. That's when you. That's when the efficiency of the homes and the insulation and all that really has the most effect on the grid. And uh, demand response, which is when you lower your usage just when it's needed most. So those five items that I just listed are what make up a clean energy portfolio. Um, these are uh, a combination of technologies that are modeled to exactly replicate what a coal plant can do. The ramp up time, the reliability at any point in the year, so that even when the sun isn't shining, the wind isn't blowing, uh, and the, you know, the, the the weather is extreme, uh, these this collection of resources, wind, solar, uh, demand side management, storage, uh, can replicate what a coal plant can do from a reliability standpoint. So this shows, and you know, we've. Uh, We've used information from the public information, National Renewable Energy Laboratory, uh, Department of Energy, EIA, Energy Information Administration, to show that, uh, and this was even before the Inflation Reduction Act was included in our models, it's cheaper 90% of the time for utilities to retire coal and bring in clean energy portfolios to, uh, to replace it. And that's nationwide. Now, with the Inflation Reduction Act, we've run more recent models, and it's cheaper over 90% of the time than any gas, than building gas, to have a clean energy portfolio. And that's nationwide. So that's even in the places where we don't have all of the incredible natural resources that we do here in Kansas and Missouri. But I mean, especially Kansas, I think on this top 10 windiest, top 10 uh, sunniest, uh, huge natural resource options there, and there's hardly any solar. So uh, definitely much cheaper. than any of the gas plants proposed or the coal plants. We just have to make them model that directly in this 2024 IRP. And we can go one more there. All right. Um, So I think, you know, we've achieved, I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act was hard won. It didn't solve all of our problems. It didn't uh, address everything, but it's the biggest climate investment ever made. And uh, we do have the uh, the option and the opportunity to make big changes here in the next couple of years. So the you know the the people really have to be involved in the implementation of this money. Though it's it's sitting up there, but if we just let the people who are uh, sitting in the state house decide where it goes, uh, it'll probably go to some contractors and um, and not really be optimally effective for the people who need it most. So. Uh, we need to come together as uh, communities, as coalitions, 
and uh, help steer the Inflation Reduction Act money as a catalyst for clean energy transition. So, you know, we we have a lot of opportunities <laughs> to speak out. We communicate uh, as opportunities come up by email, by text. There's uh, forums. There's uh, lots of ways to to plug in, and and membership is really important. We're a people powered organization. We have lawyers involved in all of the uh, the if the um, docket processes in the state. Uh, we have people in the state house, lobbyists uh, fighting for these things, but. People only listen to us and to our expertise because we have you all uh, behind us and participating and uh, and just educating folks in your own communities. And that's the only way that, that we can make change and fight the big money uh, that's trying to keep their big money, the uh, the maximum profits from the gas and utility industries. Uh, so we definitely need to uh, plug in in 2024. I'd say it's the most important year with the most opportunity I've ever seen in my career and lifetime. And uh, I hope that we can uh, keep keep the discussion going. Go ahead to the next one. Um, so, you know, the, the 2024 IRP, as I mentioned, will start, has probably started uh, at the utility level as far as bringing in data, starting to run models. But we'll really start seeing, uh, you know, opportunities for us to engage in 2024, and we'll need to uh, kind of communicate first and share what the utility needs to do to protect their customers, low-income communities, and then coordinate to get in front of the commissioners and collaborate with the other interveners, uh, which include. Uh, the Citizens Utility Review Board, um, and uh, those are folks that are supposed to advocate for all the all the ratepayers and uh, all of us. And so uh, there's and there's a few other uh, groups that we'll all be working with in that integrated resource plan, but they'll have public comment also. So having uh, in the efficiency program docket, for example, they had a public comment period, and as one of the major reasons for deciding to pass those programs in Kansas, the commissioner said. People really fought for them, wanted them, showed up to the public comment period. We saw more engagement than we ever had before, so we're passing this. Um, and we can do the same thing with changing the integrated resource plan and making the plan match reality and help people instead of uh, double down on coal and gas next year. Um, one of the ways we're doing this is uh, deep canvassing and uh, going door to door here in Kansas City. Uh, and sharing uh, this information with folks, and we need more volunteers and engagement for that. And I'll uh, let Gretchen go into more detail on that. Deep canvassing is not traditional canvassing or knock and drag. Some of you may have gone out with candidates to knock on someone's door and say, hi, uh, will you vote for Jane Smith? Great. Let me help you make a voting plan. Let me tell you a little bit about their policy on clean energy or education. Um, research shows that that type of canvassing has a very, very short timeline for changing behavior, um, which is why it's most effective about six weeks before an election um, or fewer. Deep canvassing is actually creating mutual understanding and sharing lived experiences, sharing emotions, um, and talking about our experiences in a way that takes us away from 
sort of transactional conversations where we're asking for something, but building relationships um, and finding opportunities together and building community together. It has been evidence-based, it's an evidence-based method that has been shown to change hearts and minds over long periods of time. And it's been used in other states and other cities in the climate movement. It's been used in LGBTQ plus rights movements. It's been used um, to start combating some racism. Um, And the idea is meeting people where they are, asking them to share their real conflicted feelings and not just throwing facts and figures at them, but actually saying, you know, what makes you feel that way? And like, how did, you know, how, how does that make you feel when you're thinking about this information? You share stories, you share vulnerability, um, and you actually build relationships together and make change together. It is very difficult to do. Um, and it's definitely a skill set, but we have trainings available. Um, and we have a fantastic intern. Um, her name is Danny, and a fantastic organizer named Billy, um, who some of you may have met, uh, that are going door to door. We're starting in the Indian Mounds and Pendleton Heights neighborhoods right now, and then we'll be moving out. But that's something that we're working on. And if folks are interested, please reach out to us at any time and we can connect you. Thank you, Ty and Gretchen. That was very good. Um, uh, and when you ask a question, please don't make long comments. And we'll ask you to come to the microphone here to ask your question. It was my understanding that uh, storage was one of the big pro- uh, stop uh, things that were uh, holding up solar and wind energy. And uh, um and you went over that only briefly. I'd like to know what kind of uh, progress has been made for that. And also, I understand that the grid is a problem. Um, and I wanted to know what you thought about that. Thank you so much for the question. I could talk about this for hours, but I'll... Uh... I'll keep it short. The uh, the so the batteries is the one everybody's heard of for the storage, um, and the one that we're all kind of kind of waiting for in the next year or two. Uh, they're they have these the lithium ion kind of traditional batteries that are being used. These are four hour batteries they call them a lot of times. Uh, so those are already being put on the grid and in, in some some big numbers, and uh, especially in California and places like that. Um, and into the pandemic and the uh, the way the Inflation Reduction Act is re- requires kind of domestic manufacture is uh, has put that commodity like pricing uh, down the road a year or two. So the price curves coming down steeply over the next couple of years. Uh, it was really cheap before the pandemic, and now it's getting even cheaper than that by 2025. Is the kind of projections. So that's what I meant with the storage uh, short term. The next thing we're looking for, just a few, couple, one or two years after that, are iron air batteries. Uh, these are uh, kind of new; uh, ma- they're newly commercially manufactured uh, right now in the Northeast. It's just a different kind of battery that works on rust. It uh, has an enclosed system that rusts and derusts uh, molecules to create or to store energy. And so those are actually much better for the utility application. They're way cheaper than the lithium ion. They don't use any of those uh, kind of difficult to get uh, uh, chemicals or Chinese controlled, uh, in some cases, uh, lithium products. So um, the, you know, the iron air batteries are going to be huge, I hope and think, uh, based on what we've seen so far. Uh, that'll be, and those are much larger. Uh, they, they 
work at the utility scale uh, much better than lithium. Um, on top of that, you have uh, all these non uh, kind of battery storage possibilities for long term storage. Uh, right now, we have some pumped storage, uh, which is just pumping water up a hill, and uh, and uh, when it, when you have a lot of energy, I mean, and the whole the whole idea behind storage is a lot of times with renewable energy, you have way too much energy. <laughs> when the wind's blowing, the energy is super cheap, uh, when, especially at night, um, because people aren't using a whole lot of energy. So, and, and you know, if it's uh, really if, if you overbuild a lot of solar, you have a lot of uh, energy sometimes, but then a few hours out of the uh, maybe the top hundred hours out of the uh, summer and winter months account for most of the reason to have gas plants. Like that's that's the only, that's really the only good reason at the moment that we uh, have for keeping them around is uh, those hundred hours during the year. So um, the because uh, so these other storage methods, uh, probably a dozen technologies that are kind of on the bubble and expected to come through in the next before twenty thirty. Um, compressed air storage, um, like there's like lifting heavy weights when it's happening some places in the country. Uh, uh, so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of long-term storage options that are in development. And, uh, but the batteries is the short term. If we just wait a couple of years and don't build gas plants, we can build batteries and that'll be the, uh, the short-term solution. The only thing that I would add to Ty's excellent explanation and sharing is that we should not be using lack of storage opportunities or answers now as a reason to not start planning to add more wind and solar to our grid and to our generation mixes because the technology is so rapidly improving and it takes so long for these projects to be built and approved. But if we start now, we will have the technology when we need it. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. And I'd, I'd say um, on this on the grid side, and thank uh, on the grid question. There's, I'd, I'd say there's two major categories where the grid is lacking right now, and we have to invest uh, as soon as possible. Um, one is maybe the easiest one to wrap the head around. That's large transmission, interstate large transmission projects. We got to be able to move lots of energy from places like West Kansas to where all the load, where all the cities are, and in the southeast and uh, that kind of uh, kind of large scale transmission is sorely lacking right now, and we we need to cite it well. We need to work with communities along the way to make sure that uh, it's not impacting, uh, especially low income folks or, or habitats unnecessarily. But it is incredibly important uh, to have that transmission start being built right now. And there's hundreds of millions of dollars available in the Inflation Reduction Act to facilitate that kind of planning. So that's the first thing the grid needs. Uh, and the other part is demand side data and using that data. So, uh, you know, so much of the promise of the clean energy uh, transition is being able to know exactly when people are going to start using certain technologies, being able to scale back uh, air, yeah, not only not only air conditioning, which we have now, but all of the uh, home sited batteries and solar and uh, cars, electric vehicles be able to use all of those as balancing and storage options uh, for the utility to, so that it's, I mean, we can get to very low cost power doing demand side solutions like that. And the grid has to be updated to incorporate that kind of, it's called bilateral uh, communication. So that's the other major one I'd point out. 
Summer is interested in the community engagement piece. And particularly, I'm interested, I've been a panel uh, advisory panel member for Evergy for the past year, right? So they're sending all this information to me. And I have a very positive image of Evergy based on the information they've sent. So we often look at disinformation as being the issue, but I think alternative uh, sources of information are also something. So I'm curious what Sierra Club is doing to come combat that, because it's a very aggressive effort on Evergy's part, paints them in very positive light, all these things they're doing, the ways they're helping us. And it's going to take an equally aggressive approach part, it seems to me, on the part of Sierra Club. So I'm curious what you're doing in that arena. I can take that one. Um, so when we are thinking at Sierra Club about how we address these issues, we are looking at sort of the money versus the people um, in terms of power. Now, Sierra Club will never have as much money as Evergy does, um, or much less Evergy plus AECI plus Amren plus all the other utilities, right? Um, so, and we also recognize that Utilities are sort of a trusted resource in a lot of communities. I know in my community, Amron spends hundreds of thousands of dollars every year giving back to local charities, um, their sponsors and communities, um, kind of big events. And um, they're sort of seen as like this trusted community partner by a lot of people. And so our job is to demand that they're accountable to that image that they're presenting. Um, our job is to share the information and the resources, but it starts with the building of relationships because we can't come back with the money. We won't ever be able to send out as many commercials as the utilities do. We will never be able to combat with their PR department. Um, but what we can do is we can build relationships. We can talk to people. And with the help of advocates like you in the room, learning more and getting educated and talking about this in long and wide varieties of ways, um, we can absolutely start to change that tide and hold those utilities accountable. And we can do it in ways that are sort of formal. Like in Missouri, we go in front of the Public Service Commission and we share testimony. Um, yeah, but it's also ways that aren't formal, right? So letters to the editor in the paper, um, community events like this, hosting our own meetings where we're having conversations about what we would like to see our utilities do and then sharing that information more broadly. Um, because when you start to look at what utilities are saying versus what they're doing, there's a major disconnect. And we need to make sure that more people see that disconnect. We also need to make sure that we're not talking about this in a way that makes people feel like, oh gosh, you know, I don't have a degree in engineering. I don't have a PhD in environmental sciences. I don't, there's no way I can understand all this technical information. We need to be able to talk about the climate crisis in a way that is touchable and that people understand. As a mom, I know that I need to weigh in on the climate crisis. I need to make my voice heard because if I don't, my daughter is going to have a really horrible future ahead of her. Um, and I want her to be able to thrive and grow. And 
For me, that means she should be able to go outside and play and not have to worry about it being 120 degrees outside. She should be able to drink water without worrying if, you know, it's going to be polluted by a local coal fire power plant. She should be able to enjoy her time um, on this planet and give back to the people on this planet and have a happy, healthy future. And she can't do that if we aren't talking to each other and we're not holding these uh, utilities accountable. So um, we're talking through the media, we're on social media, we're in events like this, but it's not just us. It can't just be me and Ty sharing our perspectives. The folks in the room here also have to be part of that. Yeah. um, My question relates to the two, the two, ever two facilities, Um, the, the difference on demand load uh, from the Lawrence plant and the Hawthorne plant are significantly uh, uh, different uh, the because of the Hawthorne plant supplying electricity to the air separation plant and the and the uh, pesticide plant uh, Bayer uh, are there about eighty percent to ninety percent of their load for that facility and so with a with the air separation plant with plant with um, twenty five thousand horsepower motors making liquid oxygen nitrogen and argon. How how do how do you propose to meet that kind of demand? Um, it seems to me they, they also have a pipeline over to Fairfax on oxygen. So there's a real infrastructure associated with that facility. And how would you propose to keep that facility or meet the demand of that facility? Thank you. Um, so the short answer i think to to what you're saying is clean energy uh and uh inflation reduction act uh investments uh loans grants and tax credits to build that clean energy over the next few years um so we wanted to uh get uh hawthorne retired but look before 2026 by starting that investment process now um so you know that i think that brings up commercial opportunities for behind the meter generation and uh, how much cheaper it can be for industries to produce their own uh, power from clean energy sources and uh, and industrial uh, efficiency investments which can, are also have a huge billions of dollars available through the inflation reduction act so um it's starting those types of uh of, of those types of plans and incorporating those into regional uh, plans is really important. Um, the other thing I can bring up is the, you know, to talk about those plans is participation from the local government in the planning process. Uh, Kansas City, Missouri has voted along with uh, in the climate action plan, uh, along with closing the uh, Hawthorne plant before 2026 uh, and getting involved directly in the integrated resource plan on behalf of Kansas City customers. So that means they can bring in, bring these types of specific uh, kind of load uh, and, and reliability needs to the fore uh, and help make the planning decisions required that work for uh, you know, industries and residents in Kansas City uh, directly in that planning process. Um, so those are two two important ways to to prepare to meet that load from ways other than Hawthorne and, uh, and reduce bills while we're doing it. Uh, my husband and I uh, wanted to help the environment and also help uh, help um, the amount of money we would be spending on energy. So what we did, we installed 45 solar panels. On a monthly basis, if I get a bill for $3, that's what it is. Sometimes it's $2, that's it. 
That's what I wanted to tell you, what solar panels can do for your bill in the long run. Um, the YouTube subscriber, um, we have said Charles and Carol Downing, um, they have solar subscription with the Evergy. Um, if they, if we did not miss it, please explain the program and why it seems we are paying extra costs for the profit, uh, not for the wise energy production. Okay, sorry, I'm trying to get the clarification here. You're talking about the Evergy solar program. And um, so I think what the, the main critique I would have at the current Evergy solar program is that they're charging a premium for renewable energy when renewable energy is uh, about a quarter the price of the coal energy. So it might make more sense to have coal energy program where you have to pay more to use that energy, um, which uh, brings up kind of the, uh, the the time of use uh, discussion, I think, which is kind of what that is. Time of use means you're paying a premium when fossil fuel has to run because renewables are fuel less and therefore uh, you know, very cheap in, uh, in the operations. But they have to crank those plants up in peak times, and that's what time of use bills do. I know on the Missouri side, that was a big uh, to-do here recently where they, they kind of thought they were going to make a really quick change to time of use, uh, which is a bad idea. Uh, when you make a quick change to time of use without really investing in low-income customers, low-income customers can't adjust their load to meet those requirements at that time. So you're you're just forcing people into incredibly high bills. But time of use is, like I'm saying, kind of a, a really good uh, price signal and a good idea in theory. The only thing you have to do to make it work is reimburse and invest in low-income homes. <laughs> so during this transition period, you uh, not only need to fund uh, efficiency in the homes to reduce those bills by a half or more, is, uh, which, is, which is totally doable in these energy efficiency programs, uh, therefore cutting their use and making sure that the peak use especially is lower because that's what uh, the, you know, uh, the, the envelope of the home, the insulation, that's the most important thing to keep peak power down, lower those, uh, those electric heat and air conditioning bills. So, um, so that's I think uh, uh, the, the the time of use is a good long term solution to kind of uh, mirror what you're talking about, but there needs to be investment ahead of time to make it work. The only thing that I would just add to that is I really want to just reiterate something that Ty said, which is clean energy is less expensive. So, really, if there's going to be a premium on any anything, it should be a premium on insisting on continuing to use coal um, yeah, because that is the thing that costs the most. But I will also just say that if anybody has ever ignored an issue in their house um, where it could have been a fairly easy fix and you think I'll get to it later and then it becomes a huge problem, that's what we're looking at in Missouri and Kansas right now with our coal and gas generation. It's actually going to cost us more if we are not thoughtful and because we have and and start making the transition now, because we have waited too long, we have dug into coal and gas when it is harmful to our planet and harmful to our communities and harmful to our pocketbooks. And now we are seeing the impacts of that. Um, the other thing that I'll just say here is that Missouri has 
some rules in our constitution um, that make it very difficult to have true community solar options where a community can come together, build solar powered plants, and then provide or you know solar panels or whatever, and then give that to the people who need it most in their community. Um, and so we are relying on utilities to be good community partners in that. And we can't do that if they continue to force people into 25-year commitments or to pay premiums for clean energy. Um, and paying that premium to show Evergy that you want clean and renewable energy is a fantastic thing to do if you can afford it. But if you can't afford it, it's not the only way to show Evergy that you want clean and renewable energy. We are happy to help lift up those voices and give you opportunities so that you don't have to be an expert in what the Public Service Commission is or like how to get involved. Um, we can point you in the right direction and help you raise your voice. And we need more and more people to be speaking up. One thing that I put in our slides was that we know that local wins are possible. Ever since I started at Sierra Club, I have been working on the Greenbelt Express wind transmission line, which folks in Kansas and Missouri probably are very familiar with. It's been nine years in the making. And in Missouri, the Public Service Commission recently approved the transmission line to move forward. And one of the things that they <clears throat> cited was that so many cities in Missouri have commitments to clean energy, but they knew that this energy was needed and required to help cities make those goals. Those are folks like you calling your mayors, calling your city council people and saying, we want this and making that demand and the utilities have to listen and they make changes based on that. Well, thank you very much. This has been really informative to both Gretchen in St. Louis and Ty here in Kansas City. Uh, I want to tell you what's going to be here in the forum next week, which is kind of related. Uh, attorney Bob I, who sp has specialized in his career over uh, helping to fight nuclear plants or the uh, waste from them. And the subject will be why new nuclear power plants should not be built. Thanks for listening to the All Souls Forum. The All Souls Forum is a production of the All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church of Kansas City, Missouri. And now stay tuned for Jazz in the Afternoon, followed by the Happy Hour at 3 p.m. and the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. All right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio.